Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having an incredible summer. As always, the fun stuff goes way too fast. I consider summer to be the fun stuff. (laughs) Um, I've recently realized that I need to live a life of adventure. Okay, so you guys know me and you may be like, you just realized that because I have been living adventurously for many years, but I never really realized that I need adventure. And for me, it's about expansion. It's simply about trying new things. I don't need to take an epic trip to another country to experience adventure, although that doesn't hurt at all. (laughs) Um, But adventure can be as simple as trying new foods, adding a new level of skill to an activity, taking a turn down a new road that I haven't explored before. You know, what happens when I adventure is this. I learn something about myself. And in the end, that's really what this life is about. Learning, expanding, feeling alive. Today's guest was such a great surprise for me. Richard Moss was a medical doctor who one day experienced a spontaneous state of illumination that irreversibly changed his life and profoundly transformed his understanding of human consciousness and behavior. With this opening came a new level of sensibility, including a heightened intuition, subtle insight into mystical and spiritual teachings, and the ability to sense human body energy fields. Okay, I read that from his website, and I researched that before I talked to him. And I know it may sound a little bit out there or confusing. We talk about his experience in depth in the interview. And think about this. Richard is a spiritual teacher who is very in tune with human body energy fields. I honestly had no idea how this interview would go. It was going to be an adventure for me. So this is not a light surface level interview. We talk about how we can find true peace and happiness. And in the end, we were both so happily surprised at the direction of our conversation. It's funny, I was a little worried that I wouldn't quite be able to connect to someone who many considered to be truly enlightened as uh, I'm still an enlightenment work in progress, let's just say, and that ties back to my need for a life of adventure. I'm still seeking. And on the flip side, Richard had this preconception that I would be this aggressive, competitive female athlete type trying to prove something. So when we finished the interview, we said, I think we need to be friends. 
Good thing Richard lives in Boulder because now I can hang out with him more frequently. Uh, After listening to this episode, you may feel a connection to Richard and have a desire to get involved with him at one of his retreats or through other programs he offers. So keep this in mind, coming up in October, he has a retreat called Deep Work, and it's in North Carolina. Uh, These are two to three day deep work retreats for individuals or couples, and they're intended to assist you in diving into the inner work that is most vital to your life at the time. You'll acquire new insights and gain powerful tools that will enable you to move forward and make whatever essential changes your life is calling you toward. And if you're intrigued, then I think this conversation will be perfect for you right now in your life. Before we start, let me give you, or let me give our number one sponsor some love. I'm going to give you something too here. Um, Skirt Sports is going on its 15-year birthday. 15 years. Very few companies make it 15 years. And when I started Skirt Sports, I truly just put one foot in front of the other. I was not thinking about what was going to happen 15 years later. I am so happy and proud of where we are today. We were recently included um, in this cool media outlet as one of the top 15 most inclusive fitness brands. And when you check out our website, skirtsports.com, or go to our social media you will see why we include every woman. Be sure to use the code RUN20 for 20% off. We have new season colors, prints, and styles landing just about every day right now. Again, go to skirtsports.com or visit us in person at our Boulder store. I'm usually there on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Okay, back to the show. You ready for some enlightenment? You ready to hop onto a new adventure today? I hope so. Let's bring Richard Moss on. Um, but that's cool. Yeah, so we've been in Boulder for uh, over 20 years. Tim's been here for about 25. Hmm. And me just a year or two after that. And you? I've been in Boulder since 2015. Okay, and before that you were in Carbondale? Carbondale for a couple of years. Yeah. And then before that, Ojai, California for many years. And yeah. always a Californian. Okay. Except when I came from... I grew up in the in in the East Coast. Went to medical school in New York City. Did my senior year electives and everything after that in San Francisco, and da 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 da. Being not far from Yosemite. Oh, that's nice. That, a lot of good energy there. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I discovered the absolute yeah. passion for rock climbing. Oh really? So, yeah. So that's oh. part of part of the aliveness of that and the, the depth of. You know the the immediacy of being in the present moment in such an intricate kind of physical and cerebral way that rock climbing is with the protection and stuff. Wow. Okay. We so, we have to actually start there. Okay. We got to talk about rock climbing. Okay. Because and, and mountaineering. I've been in Peru. I've been in wow all over the Sierra Nevada. Oh my gosh. Okay. So was this like a previous part of your life, or are you still rock climbing no, mountaineering? I'm seventy two. I had a hip replacement. And <laughs> but so, is that limiting you? Well, the the torn rotator cuff on the right shoulder, that's the limit on the right Oh, line. man, those rotator cuffs. They take some wear and tear, don't they? Yep. Um, so 
so you just mentioned like briefly, like I did my med school out east, you said, yeah. and then you said da 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 da. It's like we're just gonna skip all over that. No, we're not gonna skip all over that. We can't. Okay. I actually want to go back to, um, you know, you're in this amazing field of like energy work and transformation in life mm-hmm. and helping people. But before that, you were a medical doctor. Like that was where your, I don't know, adult journey maybe began, right? Yeah, I mean. I think people do medicine or do any career for different reasons. There was one motivation is obviously I grew up in a family. My mother was a nurse. There were doctors, you know, around us. And and um, then it was the Vietnam War. And of course, I went to university. That was a, a deferment. And then medical school was a natural anyway. And it was also a deferment. And medical school, I got so tired of living in Manhattan. I mean... I got robbed on the street twice. My apartment got robbed twice. My car was stolen and I never saw it again. And one day I just said, what do you want to do? Your, your fourth year medical school, you can do electives. Long story short, I said, what's the most romantic, exciting thing I can think of? And it was Denver, San Francisco, Seattle. And the first one that wrote back to me was San Francisco. And so there I was, fourth year, and then internship, the beginning of a residency. As I said, I just got introduced to rock climbing, and it began to be every time. So I ended up in emergency medicine because then I could create a schedule that could send me off to Yosemite, which were my first consistent states, altered states of consciousness. Climbing truly, as as does anything deeply done that's athletic, it takes you into that flow state. It takes you into that non-separation between yourself and what you're doing. You know, In fact, the moment you become a spectator of your own doing, you're not in the flow anymore and your energy drops. And, um, and of course, with rock climbing, you can just keep increasing the difficulty as you, your, your skill level increases, as your technique increases. And so... You almost can't outgrow it. Oh, it's so interesting to me because I, I'm not a rock climber. Um, I heights create a physical, you know, reaction in me, and I notice that as an adult. And so I've never really explored rock climbing, but I've watched people do it, and I've seen how it becomes um, not just like an obsession. It's like it becomes a singular focus in their lives. They're, they change their lifestyles around a sport. Exactly. And it's not their job, but they become it's, rock climbers. Well, yeah, and I have friends that are surfers or the sons of good friends, and you know, serious surfers. I have one friend who was a world-class surfer. He's 10 years younger than I am, and but he still just can leap on a surfboard, just can't. He got hurt badly pretty recently on a fairly big wave that he probably shouldn't have been on, but... It's a passion, and it's really also, certainly for surfers and for rock climbers, it's a spiritual life as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. And you know, the other thing though, well, I relate to surfing. This is actually kind of fun. I always considered myself a surfer, even though I never surfed growing up, but mm-hmm. I always wanted that to be who I was or part of my life. So I learned last year at 45. Oh my goodness. And it was amazing. And I went back again this year and it was amazing. And I plan to go and continue surfing in my life. But my previous athletics, and a lot of people listening are runners. Um, triathletes, people doing sports that move them forward and make them breathe hard. And you think of a sport like rock climbing, or a lot of people think surfers are lazy. 
I realize now they're just exhausted all the time because surfing's so hard. But you know, with rock climbing, it's not like you're moving super fast up a wall, like running, you know? But you're super focused. That's it. So what is it about rock climbing that puts you into the flow state or into that other altered, you know, place? When when our attention and our action is in the same place. So when you're not telling your body what to, when you get past the point where you're telling your body what to do and you're just doing with your body and you learn, the body just learns how to do things more and more precisely. And so there's an art to it and a, and a skill level and you can see yourself improving. But, you know, I might be anxious or afraid before a climb but once you start climbing it disappears then when you stop and rest and look down at the sheer drop below you it that feeling of exposure is so, so it got familiar enough that it wasn't distressing anymore i mean after a while i never thought of it until before a climb but i stopped climbing when i was 55 so that's 17 years ago and i did that partially because i didn't have anyone to climb with anymore and my son got sick so we had been climbing together um, he had Lyme disease, and it became chronic Lyme disease, and just he could sometimes go, but not. But but at that point, then soon after that, I injured my shoulder, and so with a rotator cuff injury, which I've rehabilitated through physical therapy, exercise, things like that. But I not I didn't do surgery, and um, it's still a limitation. Yeah, it is, and so. Let's go back, though. Let's go back in time to your now practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that, because this is before 1977, right. right? Which I think is an important year because a transformative event occurred for you, which I actually have no idea what it is okay. because I couldn't dig that far with the time I had to research you. Okay. Um, but you were you were a medical doctor. You chose emergency medicine, and it's interesting that you're... Uh, motivation for choosing that was that you could set your schedule so you could do things like rock climbing. Yes, and also because it's so concrete. Most of the, the, every every time you're in an emergency room, the, there's many levels of it, but there's there's a sense that when something really needs to be done, you can do it and you see a result right away. And compared to where I had been tempted to go into say, psychiatry, um, but I also knew that... Uh, I knew that it was time to be my own context, and I knew that if I really followed my passion, my heart, I loved the experience of being outdoors, always had, but once you know you start climbing in Yosemite, it's a different thing. So how I made the change was, medicine was an obvious choice because I was the Vietnam War. It was an obvious choice because of my family background with my mother being a registered nurse. It was never my true calling, and so I was never really that. Deep down, I somehow knew this was not going to be my true calling. And then, um, ER work was great because, as I say, you get a you, you, you do something and you, you 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 see something happen. And and also because the schedule was more flexible, and therefore I could get out and be outdoors. And and that 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 taste of that kind of aliveness. Then I went off to Peru to climb there in the Cordillera Blanca in 1975. And I had already started being a seeker. I had already started meditating. I had already started, I was part of a, 
interesting group called Seekers After Truth in, in, in Berkeley, and it spawned a lot of consciousness teachers besides me. And, um, and then, then in 1977, as you just spoke of, I was 30. It was almost coincident with my 30th birthday. And I don't want to sound cliched because it's, there's things called mystical experiences or kundalini awakenings or it has all these different names, but it, it, it was this very, very challenging experience of a massive state of consciousness, which I've spent the next 45, 42, 40, whatever it is now, 42, 42. years <laughs> integrating. <laughs> There's no end to it. Once that door into the infinite opened, uh, there was nothing that could possibly be more alive than going down the path of understand, you know, awakening more and more to it. And then it didn't take long having been a doctor and kind of being a natural teacher, because a good doctor is also a teacher. And I would almost say, take the word doctor away, call it physician, physis, life force energy. Um, so it was a transition that just happened to me. I wasn't looking for it. And the medical background gave me credibility. So when I started transitioning into doing my retreats and working with people in groups all over the world, um, and beginning to write books so I could find out what I was learning as I, by writing, mm -hmm. and then writing is a very interesting process that way. Um, trying to find a way to put the energy of a state and a space into words so it carries the energy. I think my books do that fairly well. I, I know Power of Now did it, Eckhart Tolle's book, and others. And, and poetry often does, and so forth. So writing was a, a deep adventure. I've written six books, and one a friend put together of, of short phrases from my talks. So people can, two of my books are still in print. You know, if you think the first one came out in 82 or 81, 81. And what are they called? The first one was called The I That Is We, which says a lot, because um, I mean I, as in I am I this thing that we all say, me, I. Um, that I became everyone and everything, and I realized at that moment that the apex, of all, the apex of reality was relationship, and that consciousness is relationship, and that living conscious relationship is what you do when you're rock climbing. It's what you do when you fall into the flow of writing. It's what you do when you fall into the immediacy of listening others and if you listen to where you're speaking from and you, and your whole body's in what you're saying then even speech becomes like rock climbing or surfing um, because if it's my head I just stop I, I, I can feel it it's not real to me it's concepts I, mean, I am speaking concepts but they have to be alive in that moment as they emerge out of me wow okay there's a lot of ways places we can go with this one thing I heard earlier that I think could help some of our listeners is when you actually said, this is before this sort of awakening moment, um, you said you knew that medicine was not your true calling. Mm -hmm. How did you know? Because people are plugging along, thinking maybe they're happy, maybe they're okay. How do they know if what they're doing isn't their true calling? Something else awaits them. Well, there's... 
everybody has the experience of dissatisfaction, you know, about things, and, and we can dwell in our beliefs about what, what, you know, and pursue satisfaction because, but it wasn't that. It wasn't that I was dissatisfied with medicine. It was just, I was much more passionate about rock climbing. If I'd stayed in medicine, I'd have either been in sports medicine, or I'd have done something like hand surgery, or I, ortho, maybe orthopedic surgery. I certainly wasn't going to do psychiatry, yet the predilection to go in that direction also spoke to something about who, mm. who I was in my being. So the answer basically is, you feel it. And at a certain point, um, if you're not already, I was young, so I wasn't imprisoned in, in the golden handcuffs. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a lot of debt. I, I didn't have any debt. I, I was able to buy my first house when I was t not even 27 years old. In, of course, in the Oakland Hills, and it wasn't particularly expensive. But for me, at that point, it was an enormous step. Um, and then, and then, everything led me. But if I had been totally committed to medicine, if it, if I'd been driven for that, if I was in that competitive sense for getting the best you know, internship, the best residency, um, and then going on, and then that's a different, you know, I think you can have a passion for medicine, no doubt about it. What it's turned into is very difficult for many doctors because there's so much bureaucracy, so much administrative stuff. It's so expensive, and, and our system has gone crazy that way. When I first left medicine, my physician, and I would still go every week, and, and after, I would go for a continue education class. So I'd see my colleagues, and they'd always say to me, what are you going to do for money? You know, And it was almost like they were mirroring my fear. Because that, that was, you know, a kind of fear. And then, and then as years went by, and I continued to go, as I was grounding deeper and deeper in that new me that was much truer to who I was, in which there's no end to, so I'm still on that path. Um, they would say to me, they didn't come up and mirror my insecurities. They'd say to me, oh man, you got out of here in time. It's become so crazy. Oh, the insurance has gotten so expensive. The paperwork. I spend more time just making notes. And this was before we had, you know, smartphones and recording. But even now, the more we have these devices, the more they eat up our time anyway. Um, so it's a whole complex of different things. You just... You know, and then what do you do unless you really have a calling and, and you have a, a natural gift for that calling, then you have to take a leap of faith. You yeah, know? And, and that's and, and it is scary. You bring up fears and uh, I think that's worth talking about a little bit. Um, one of the things I think that I've read about with you and learned about is that we all experience suffering. Mm-hmm. And much of it is probably self-imposed. And maybe a lot of it comes from perceived fears. Yeah. Like maybe you can talk a little bit about that because when you say take a leap of faith, that's the, that's the scariest thing for most people. It's usually leaving something, a situation, a relationship, a job, or whatever, to move into something unknown. Yeah. Well, one thing about changing or moving, I, I always tell people all these many, many years, it wasn't that I was passionate about medicine, but I really enjoyed it when I was doing it. And so I say, don't leave one thing for another because you're dissatisfied. Make where you are your meditation. Look at look at the stories that you tell yourself about why where you are is wrong 
until you can say a really deep yes in the present moment, day after day, again and again, in that environment. And that doesn't mean you'll get, quote, stuck in it or something like that. It means that you'll outgrow it. Maybe at a soul level, you'll outgrow it. It'll, it'll be like life will then call you to what's next because you actually outgrew what you're in. And so when I say leap of faith, I've met many people that have taken, kind. Of, I'll leave this, I'm not happy with it, I know I have to find my true calling. But they, they understood what they were leaving, they understood what they were rejecting. Um, not, they didn't have a sense that they had really completed where they were, which for me is when you're no longer losing energy to contraction and stories. And that takes me back to what you asked about um, self-made suffering. And I don't want that to sound callous, but it's simply true that our mind has a our thinking mind has a tremendous instantaneous influence on our body and the minute you say for example i'm not good enough right? the minute you say that there's a depressiveness and a dissatisfaction with yourself which can be projected but you're caught up in the energy of that thought and that thought actually starts from a, a deeper kind of insecurity and confusion from early in life from childhood so you have to go into your body, into that, what's underneath that particular kind of story. I have to work harder, you know, um, is another kind of, I, the I have to that put, is put in front of so many sentences, turns something that you could love or flow with or just disappear into for a while into a chore, you know. So if I'm saying I have to go someplace, I immediately stop my mind and go, I'm going. You know, because what I'm actually doing is always fine. It's it's my resistance to it with my mind where the suffering comes from. So my last two books, the Mandala of Being, and the, the most recent one, but it's not that recent anymore, um, Inside Out Healing, are all about learning, literally learning, to stop the arousal, the agitation, the the anxiety, the anger. The, the fear that's generated by the thinking. And then there's, that means you learn to, to see your thoughts, what they're affecting in you in the present moment, and you have to choose to relax them or let them go in that moment. You know? And you have to teach yourself how to recognize what your mind's doing, and you say, okay, you know, what would this now be without that thought, or what what would I actually be experiencing now if I wasn't framing it in that conceptual structure? And, and you drop back into the now, just like the rock climber, just like the surfer, just as you have done, I'm sure, as a triathlete, zillions of times when the running runs you and the biking bikes you, you know, and the swimming swims you. And sometimes it doesn't, and you're just in it. And that's when it's magic. Yeah. Wow. This is cool. Um, so you have to teach yourself, or you have to learn how. I mean, yeah. is this part of the work you do? Is you help now people learn? That's the learn? perfect question. Yeah. Thank you. We have to talk about a capacity inside of us that I call the aware self. And when you say it that way, you hear a noun and you think a thing, but it's actually a process, right? Like being a runner isn't the thing; it's a process. You know, and being anything, 
ultimately is is a process it's it's a verb it's an unfolding and and so this aware self process is is a part of the ego that begins to look at the ego but not as a critic not as a judge not as a pusher not as a fixer you know it doesn't it's not another kind of subpersonality that's like if you criticize yourself you feel bad you judge yourself you feel bad you judge someone else you can feel bigger but it's it's a mind made sensation and that kind of superiority or judge them bigger and they'll make yourself inferior so that kind of inferiority is suffering a little bit or a lot cumulatively a lot so the aware self process is that you start to become a disciple of your thinking and you start to become a disciple of your mood and your feeling state and the kind of thinking that tends to invoke and you begin to break the loop somewhere you either you come back into your body always back into the body and start again and start again and you start to teach yourself these basic ideas that who any of us really is is actually a state of consciousness an embodied state of consciousness in this moment yet we have to live in our minds as well the kind of left brain linear future oriented past oriented part of that's i've learned to put that part of me to the side but every athlete does whether you do it consciously or not you you get past it you know but if you if you get if you learn to do that like i did in rock climbing then the next step is to learn to do it in a marriage or to learn to do it with your children or learn to do it in your career put aside the storyteller and be where you are and that's a practice it's a path and there's no shortcut but once you become a disciple of the thoughts that hurt you once you start to learn how to journey like like a an example of journeying in the body one day i was hanging in a very it was bouldering and it was really a difficult move i had not mad, made it work yet and at a certain point i i had the sensation and the i'm going to fall off and the thought i'm going to fall off and then i went i just disengaged somehow and i said that's a belief about what the sensation means what is this actual sensation and i clung to that kind of microscopic finger and toe holds for at least another 10 seconds just watching when my mind said you can't and what my body was actually doing and when i got off of that i'd learned something profound that my mind's idea of my limits was not what necessarily my body could do but my mind could lead my body to a place where my body could go past my mind and then i learned that i've tried to learn that everywhere everywhere with moods with feelings with sensations with loneliness with but basically fear in all of its disguises and there's no end to it in fact this morning or early this morning is laying in bed in, in a very familiar dark place where nothing that i teach or i'm saying now i could make happen for myself but i know this place so well that i don't believe what it tells me like oh you'll never get past this or uh it won't matter anyway you know the collective consciousness is taking us off a cliff with global warming and environmental destruction but and it, i just knew oh just there's the mind there's the mind but the actual spending time in that unknown place 
in the body. There's nothing rational about it. You don't know what you're learning, but you learn. And it's like the rock climbing. You don't know how you know you can stay longer than what your mind tells you you can do. And of course... Did you fall? Uh, well, well, yes. I, well, I eventually, I eventually consciously let go. But after I rested and I went back up, I did that move for the first time. And and when did you see the film? You know, first ascent. I didn't. Did I did see Free Solo. That's what I. I, I oh, didn't mean first ascent. I meant Free Solo. Yes. And Don yes. Wall. You know that they're wonderful films, but Free Solo. I mean, that may be to me the ultimate state of focus. And I, I think, you know, that we we can think of where the consequence of a moment of commenting on yourself or or not the commentator as opposed to the witness, because there's a deep witnessing that you're you, you that you're in the flow of your body and your awareness and they're one, and there's then the moment can I do this thought, that kind of a thought, for Alex Hamild and on that climb would have meant death. So the ability to put that out of his mind, of course, is tremendous training. It's probably that he's somewhat autistic in that spectrum. Many things. I mean, when people do very exceptional things, it's not like a lot of people can do that. It's like, I, I'm five foot nine. I'm never going to be a, never could have been a great basketball player, nor would a, you know, a basketball player ever be a gymnast. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, feel like I want to know more about what happened to you in 1977 because it, you know on your website it's called a spontaneous state of illumination that irreversibly changed your life and profoundly transformed your understanding of human consciousness and behavior like did it was like a lightning bolt struck or like what happened can you take us through that well let me first preface by saying I think a lot of people have kind of unitive experiences, oneness experiences. If it if it's very intense, depending upon how old you were, and I was 30, which is relatively young for those things, to happen and be able to be integrated. Because people have mystical kinds of experiences from childhood onward. Right. But, so I would say the result of it was, was this aware self-process awakened. Finally, Richard was an object of consciousness. I didn't live inside of Richard. You know, my ego, my the patterns of my behavior, the ones that I could see and the ones I still don't see that I keep finding and discovering in more and more subtle levels, which is what's liberating me into kind of just heart and love and in a in a super intelligent body. Um, but that experience began, you know, and you can there were maybe precursors, adumbrations, foreshadowings, but any way to try to explain it is just another kind of story. You know, Eckhart Tolle talks about have, being in really deep depression, not even thinking it was worth living, and then one night asking him a question, who's the one that's depressed, and waking up the next day different. Mine wasn't gentle. If I was depressed beforehand, it was, you know, normal mood swings. Uh, I, I would say maybe I had a tendency to some of the darker places, um, but that wasn't it. It was like suddenly another reality opened, and I was in a state of just shaking with energy, 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 not really understanding what it was, but it, 
a physician, so I knew it wasn't seizures and you know brain disorders and things like that. And I knew enough about psychiatry and the mind to know that it wasn't uh, a psychosis, that this was in a category of something I never learned about. You know? Interesting. And then, and then I had to ask for help, and 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 I asked for help into the kind of cosmos. Who's been in this state? And I had read the Gospels for the first time in my life, the the, you know, the four Gospels, because a priest friend of mine that had healed himself at least for quite a long time through non-traditional path um, gave them to me. Right? I wasn't a religious person at all, and I'd never really read them. And when I read them, I, we I kept weeping at certain points, and I didn't understand why. And I, I called those tears of recognition. And then one month later, I have this experience, and I'm just, I'm just feeling shattered. I'm feeling like I'm gonna, I'm losing my mind. How can I bear this level of intensity in me that's shaking me apart? That's, that's breaking down my perceptions. Not like the way I'd experienced these altered perceptions in rock climbing. This was like shattering. Everything was vibration. Everything was just vib. It was all. The universe was vibration, but I wasn't at one with it. Richard's ego was struggling. So the end of the story basically was, to put it short, I asked for help. The answer came back. When I said, who's been here? The answer was Christ, the Christ Jesus, the Christ consciousness. Didn't know shit about that. you know. But I said, okay. Because I instantly knew that it existed forever at a certain level somewhere and that that's what was that's where I had to somehow land without having any idea how and that's the beginning of self-inquiry because I all I could do was sit there saying I'm in the past remembering how I used to be I'm anticipating the future that I'm going to be die in a minute or you know blow my mind you know or go insane now, now I'm judging me now I'm judging my own speak and that went on and on and then a black butterfly and a white butterfly were mating in the air landed on a branch, well, dancing in the air, landed on a branch, were mating, and when they stopped, you know, they were only five feet from me, they, the black butterfly landed on my forehead, and in that instant, it all resolved into whatever we want to call it, the perfect nature of the oneness of everything, inside, outside, above, below, inner and outer, everything. And then it, there was just silence. Just a the peace that passes, the peace beyond all fear, the whatever words. And that stayed with me for quite a long time, for days and days. And then, of course, I had to function in the world, so I had to put on Richard's ego, and it was like putting on clothing built for a five-pound person, and I'd now become 500 pounds. Or, you know, it was like... It's stifling. And, yes, stifling. Yeah. And so I've been slowly digesting my ego through the aware self by watching the thoughts that make this moment unhappy. And I, it's never ending. Right. Uh, it's, but, but eventually you realize there's nothing that, that it's only, this is all about love. You know, the whole universe is some kind of act of love. You know, our crazy metaphor like the Big Bang, nobody understands what that means. Primary singularity, everything compressed into a state of no space and no time, and then it bursts forth. These are metaphors, it's like poetry. You know, it's, but when you have some sort of an awakening of this nature and you can begin to see yourself as a 
precious object and you don't have to be the victim of your conditioning, your enculturation, and I'm talking gradually, you know, of so-called gender issues, of, you know, because their body doesn't worry about its gender, you know, and when the mind isn't being led by conditioning about being a male or being a female in this world, you are a woman or you are a man or you are homosexual, bisexual, it doesn't really matter, you are. You know? And if you land in yourself as you are, you land in truth. Um, and I had my first glimpse there in 77, but I knew that that perfect love that is existence I had to learn. And, and I knew somehow that it was one step at a time. And I always taught, not from the perspective of the guru who was awakened, but the student that was learning from self-observation through that witnessing, that aware self-process, that's paramount. Until that, until that gets activated in someone, they're, they're always at the product of some level of belief. They're at the product of what their thinking does to them. They're at the product of their reactions, and, and then they'll justify their reactions. My mother did this, or my father did that, or you know, I was wounded here, or that. You know, it, it, so the self-justification never ends. And there's a zillion books about that are basically self-justification from the point of view of the present moment where everything's just sensation in the body. Wow. I knew we were going to be deep today. <laughs> this is your life, though. And this is how you're helping other people find that, I don't know what it is, peace? Like, I well, feel... Well, find the path that gets you gradually toward it. Yeah. You know? I mean, once you become a student of this, you will have a passion, Okay. If you're just trying to fix yourself, you'll do it a little bit. You'll meditate some days, you won't meditate other days. But what made you want to train and become a professional triathlete? That's a really good question. We gonna Should we life coach me? <laughs> I'm not going to coach you. You know, I think, um, I don't know if I thought about it. It was more about following a gut and a passion as I went. And, um, and I think I'm really resonating with the stories you tell yourself or you believe about yourself or you believe about others. Mm -hmm. That idea of, you know, they're just stories. Exactly. Even your past is a story. Not, not eidetic memory, that's the memory of numbers and the mem formulas you memorize, things, but any emotional experience, any experience of that kind any um, any relationship experience gets reimagined and if you're depressed and you reimagine it it it's a darker event often and if you're really feeling good in yourself you don't go back to that memory as soon as you're feeling angry or you know you, you select the past that justifies the state in the moment and then the past you select not only justifies it, it reinforces it. You're reimagining the past now, and now, and now. So freedom from the past and freedom from the future at one level inside of ourselves, like when you're doing what you did as a triathlete, as a passion, disappearing into the activity and then wanting to do it more. Or as I discovered with rock climbing and then discovered with the journey of self-knowing. And ultimately, it's all about one thing, it's about self-knowing 
for the sake of being an instrument for love because it is all love. And you know, this is really, really interesting because I talk to a lot of people, I ask a lot of people questions about what do they really want? And at the very base of that question is usually happiness, which maybe is love. But um, I feel like people think that there is a goal. I'm a goal setting kind of person, right? How do how does achievement or going after things or learning to surf or whatever play into this? Like that whole what if, right? So for people to find happiness, they often think, okay, so I'm going to seek happiness. So I'm unhappy with my marriage. I'm going to leave it. So then I'll be happy. I'm I want to win a race. So I'm going to win a race. Then I'll be happy. But what I found is that that doesn't always or often, sometimes never, lead to actual happiness. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this concept of chasing happiness or chasing, I don't know what the right piece, you know, or whatever. Well, basically trying to avoid dissatisfaction and find something satisfying. But I think really at the heart of what we all want is a loving relationship we're here to learn to love and be loved and it turns out you can't find someone on the outside most of the time who's going to be the right person for that which is why i've been married three times you know and it's not that you know if i look back i don't blame my previous spouses i'm probably more inclined to, to judge myself but it would only be because i'm looking at who i've become and saw who i was and remember very clearly who I wasn't and how I lived out of my stories, how I lived out of my conditioning, how I unconsciously lived out of, you know, male male entitlements, patriarchal dynamics I didn't see, how my compensation was to be really smart. So I was a kind of know-it-all. And I didn't really know that you could trust another person's way of seeing the world. If you really wanted to love love with that person, you have to truly recognize they're not you. And I think we're all looking for that. We're really looking for profound intimacy. And the only way we can find it, and it is a, a passion and a fulfillment all at the same time, the only way you can find it is first know thyself, right? And then meet someone who also wants to know herself or himself profoundly. And you get deep enough and you realize I, I want to now, the apex isn't knowing myself for some form of enlightenment. The apex is actually relationship. The apex of what it's all about, starting with you and your husband, me and Kathy, or at the level that's appropriate right in this moment between us, which is, it's, it's to kind of love, love with each other. It's not kind of, it is that for me. And that that's what we're here to do. But you have to know yourself and so it's in service to love that we take these journeys. And I ultimately think that when you want to win a race, it's a way of finding self-love. But it doesn't change the deeper level of dissatisfaction, which may be species-related, you know, it may be culturally related, it may be family of origin, how you were raised, the kind of attention you did or didn't get, the mirroring you got or didn't get by your parents, their relationship that you're just inside of and you know, the energy of their relationship. And, and you can't say it's 
them. You, it's you. And, and so you defend against it in whatever way you adapt. And, you know, and some people adapt by becoming more aggressive and going after it hard. Some people adapt by going and withdrawing and reading books and you know, spending hours painting or that kind of thing ultimately. Um, and some people adapt by just trying to be safe, by making everybody else feel good, entertaining them, being a pleaser, taking care of. Those are kind of basic survival mechanisms. But you'll never be happy at that level. You can't be. But that was what made us safe as children. What makes us safe as children kills love in an adult. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, um, Kathy, well, first of all, you know, you've been married three times. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that each time you had a relationship, it, you felt it was the right thing. Absolutely. Because Maybe not my first marriage. Um, interesting. She was a wonderful, wonderful human being. I look back and think, until I met Kathy, probably the most wonderful human being that I was around intimately. Um, but I wasn't ready. Mm. I still had a lot I had to do in the world, but also I wasn't ready to make the kind of commitment I can make now back then. And she was in her own way ready. She gave her heart to me, so it was heartbreak for her. You know, and I look back at that and go, oh God, I wish I hadn't, I wish I could have not done that um, because, does, of, because of my own self-interest, really. But it wasn't just my own self-interest. We're called by our souls, and, and until we really are called enough to be awakened to the aware self process, the awareness process, we can't begin to digest what divides us from the person we say we love. Because we're dividing ourselves out of a habit. We're separating. We've been separating probably before the womb. We, we have to separate from the environment that our parents hold, and especially our mothers. We, we're separating all the time. And, and that's what it means to have an identity. But to be identified with the things you get your identity from will ultimately be the limit on where love can flow and intimacy can happen. So you the aware process allows you to digest. And so if Kathy goes through her heartbreaks, you know, she, she she did something with tremendous strength and left a marriage for very, very good reasons, but it was overwhelming as a woman in her early 30s and raising two children then by herself with some help from her family, of course, and being a professional person. And then fast forward many years and she's in another marriage in which her heart got broken. you know, And then... She has years of being, but on a path, the same path, ultimately, of using awareness to journey deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into herself, and finally to do that for the sake of love itself, not not for some individual salvation or individual right. happiness. It's Because it really isn't about happiness. You know, we're happy in moments, or, but it's more about joy. And joy doesn't come until we can say yes to the things that we are so afraid to feel and and stop the patterns that are closing our hearts and driving us into separation. And and this is there's no shortcut, you know. And so the many, many people have had multiple marriages and often unless you really learn about yourself and then choose someone who's learning about themselves, those marriages don't work either. Or you're old enough to finally say I can't fight anymore. I'm going to say yes to this as best I can. And those marriages do work. Interesting. Yeah. And that's also has to do with the ego finally 
being, I don't even know the right word, but released, right? You do the best you can, you know, you're there. Um, What Kathy said uh, is she said, what became clear to me early on is that the more inner work I'm able to do, the less baggage my children will have to carry. And I thought that was really relevant, Um, especially I have a seven-year-old kid, right? And uh, so I understand the idea of this hope that we can help create a strong and happy and loving person, right? Um, But it also makes me feel like as humans, is it like, do we reach a point where we have created whatever stories and then at certain point in our life realize now I need to work on myself, right? It's just sort of like, it feels like children, the world is wide open. So at what point do we step back and go, oh, my beliefs have gotten stuck or I need to open myself up to grow? I don't know. It's just it's just a thought that kind of struck me as I was thinking about raising children. Like we wanted, we're doing the best we can, we think. Um, but at what point are those children sort of formed and then they have their own things they have to work through. Well, that's true. But it's also true that if, if you're a person who is growing beyond yourself through a process of awareness, and for a reason like Kathy, I don't want to pass on my fears, my reactivity, my defenses, you know, to my children. And so as she gets deeper in herself and is listening more and more to that infinite part of herself that's ever evolving and emerging, she's a constant, her expression of love is new and new and new. And her children experience being loved but not necessarily being held in the encasement of the projection of the mother or the projection of the father on the child. It doesn't mean, I mean, parenting is an incredibly profound, you know, mothering, fathering, profound, profound, profound relationship. And and so there's no guidebook for it. That, but you can point, if you're unhappy with your mother and father, it's probably because they still see you in their past and they don't see you right now. Because when they see you right now, then there's an energy that's created in that being seen and likewise by when you see deeply another there's an energy created right in this moment it's a third consciousness but it's alive and it's real and if you can create that third consciousness with your children it still doesn't you know at some level because you say no but your attention's really with them and in your heart you don't fight to have them behave in a certain way because you want ultimately to feel better about yourself, you know. Um, but but you see that they have to find their path. And so they grow up with less doubt about who they are because they've had a mother or a father or both who have gone deeper into themselves and know that it's really good to have doubt about anything you believe. You know, it's it's really it's really the immediacy of the present moment in which love happens and everything important happens and though we love our children our egos our patterns our self-protection what we adapted in ourselves from our childhood it gets dropped on them unless you do what kathy said i don't want to drop that on them and so i think 
her daughters have a person who will be ever-changing so that they can ever-change, so they can constantly meet in a renewal of the love. And when they look back, it's not like they're getting over wounds. Everybody has this or that, but you know, but they actually know each other well. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of blame. So there's, and there's a profound level of love and that I see between her and her her daughters who, who range almost 20, almost 26 or 27 and almost 30. Um, wow. And it's amazing. So I'm glad you found that quote by her. And, and you know, I think I wanted to drop my baggage so I could l- love someone. I could love love with someone. And I've said that a number of times, loving love. You know, mm. we say, I love you. Please love me back. I'll love you if you love me back. And it's transactional. I'll be good to you because I love you. And you'll receive that into yourself and it'll make you good and you'll be good to me. And it's transactional. But you reach a certain point and you realize, well, I'm never going to find the perfect person, you know. If my own patterns of separation, separating and self-protection keep getting in the way, you know, the transaction will only work some of the time. But if I'm loving love with that person, then that's always mine. If I, and, and then I'm responsible for everything in myself that closes my heart, right? And if I'm responsible for that, then it, 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 ba- it matters tremendously who you are, but at another level, who you are is who you are. You know, this other, this otherness. And so that's why I say for me, the apex is really relationship. And consciousness of yourself gives you a capacity for a deeper relationship that has no end. Nobody ever finished. I don't believe Buddha mm-hmm. ever finished or anybody else ever finished mm-hmm. because there is no end. There is no end to love. And, and, and there's, there's no end to the, the subtleties of the ego, even if, if you found levels that are, you know, and you've worked them through that have to do with your family of origin, then you still come from a cultural matrix and the epigenetic influence of that, and that still happens within a species kind of structure. And that outgrowing is such wonderful work, but it requires a passion. And this is the work you do now, and that yes. you continue to evolve. Um, I just have a couple more quick questions. We're going a little bit long. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the energy, you know, that it's all just energy. And my experience is that as far as relating to other people, I can often feel energy, and I can feel if it's an energy that is friends with my energy, <laughs> you know what I mean, um, or not. And I can feel when people are closed and when they're open. And is that the kind of energy you're talking about? Or is it more like um, physiological, just like you are an energy field walking through this earth and some days you vibrate more and some days you vibrate less? That's a good question. I mean, there is the point of view that it's all energy, sure, but so what? It's all energy so that, so that I can, so I can what? And the energy that we create through the quality of 
of our self-knowing and the quality of our attention to that part of ourself for the purpose that I become present to you and become and create that third consciousness which is our relationship that's the energy that's important that's the that's the essential energy so if I feel someone's energy is not like mine <clears throat> and I'm a teacher or when I do it when I've done over the years I did thousands of quote energy sharings or energy healings <laughs> and then I change that into a kind of meditation because it is more meditation but if I feel someone's energy is different then then it's different to the me that I'm identified with and that's an energy body you know but if as soon as I so I would like 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 turn my um my, my tuner on my radio to try to find a me that could be in rapport with that person that we're we're now whatever it is I'm sensing that seems to be dividing us or making us a different, that's allowed. But where's the level where suddenly we're both a part of something, you know, universal enough? Because then that energy, I think, is really good for that person, but it's also simultaneously good for me. Mm-hmm. So another way to translate that is something Kathy says. It's so beautiful. She says, whoever has the most presence of mind, the most consciousness in the moment, in a situation, has 200% responsibility for what happens. Interesting. So if someone's not the kind of person that I am energetically, that's fine because they're the kind of person that they are. If I start judging them, you know, if I even start categorizing them that way, well, that's a form of separation in me. But that doesn't mean that if my heart's open to them, I'm going to fall in love with them or love them. I'm not going to lose that boundary because there is a boundary where that person's really right for you in your body. But you, they won't be right for many, many, many levels of your self-identification and your psychology. And that's for you to take out of the way through your aware self process and that gives you 200% responsibility if you have just a little more presence of mind in an interaction oh a, not long ago i went to a restaurant here and i parked at 10 minutes to 7 in a parking lot where after 7 anyone could be there but prior to that it needed to be for the businesses and this guy comes out of his shop and starts saying you can't park there i pay a lot of money for parking and it's not and at first I went, I wanted to give him back the same energy. And, mm-hmm. and I did. I said, well, I'm not going to come into your shop, I guess, but I'll move the car. And then I went, no, no. And then I, I made myself more open. And he, so I, I became a space that he could yell at, you know. But I didn't have to defend, and I just took 200% responsibility that it didn't escalate and that at least I didn't leave angry. That's one tiny example. Yeah, that's a great example because you're constantly working on it. Yep. Oh. Um, you know, what is... So we didn't really... This is all about enlightenment, right? This is like the work As a process. Yes. So... Is there like a single thing or a couple of things that people could take away that they could just say, you know, tomorrow or today, in one minute, I can try this? Like, what are some practical things people can do to start on this path? Consciously breathe. 
Hmm. I mean, if you if you go for a meditation retreat, let's say in the Vipassana tradition, you'll just start for days just sitting there for hours on end, watching the air go in and out of your nose, feeling the sensations change. So start to consciously breathe. So that's taking your awareness process. You know, it's still not a, a really deep awareness, but it's it's an, you have a good intention and, and it's a part of your ego that's now just doing something, it's watching something neutral. So watch your breathing, breathe consciously in your body and think of your breath and your awareness as a friendship. Okay, Suddenly make friends with yourself by resting your awareness on your breathing and then just breathe in and out of your experience right now with gentleness and curiosity. Right? And then with a sense that I can relax even more the way I'm being present to myself. You know, the quality of my attention can get softer and softer. So that's the first practice, basic grounding practice. The second understanding is that there is only now. Okay, And the great discovery of the Buddha was that for human being, maybe... I don't know beyond the new thing, but humans, in the now, consciousness is actually sensation. When you start to think about consciousness, then we can talk about this and this and this, but in the now, as it was for an infant, consciousness is just sensation. And so come back to your sensations and realize you have this miraculous thing called your aware self that is actually the ability to create a relationship with discomfort, with pain, emotional pain, physical pain. And while you don't necessarily fix anything, the quality you gradually learn, how you touch your experience in this moment, is how that experience starts to live in you and for you. So when that guy came out of the barber shop angry, he was touching the moment with a lot of aggressiveness, which created his anger. From a second or two or three, I joined his anger out of my own self-righteousness, you know, just habit at one level. And then I chose a different relationship to my experience and to him by dropping into my body. So how you touch, and when I dropped into my body, I, body, I touched that moment with spaciousness and non-resistance, and then it just became his pain. I also contributed to it for a moment. And then, it's not my responsibility what he does, but there wasn't a residue between us, at least from my side. And so, how you touch anger is how that anger eats you. How you touch neediness or need is how need becomes neediness and neediness becomes need endlessly endlessly. And the same thing with God. Nobody knows anything about God but what they're taught or they believe. So we create our, we create God in that sense. So create one that makes you more and more loving because you are the creation of the God you create. And that's a truth of the present moment. So you're the creation of the relationships you're living moment by moment. They create you, you create them. So I tell people, put on your refrigerator and every, every and your mirror in the bathroom, 
who I am, who I really am, starts right now. And that doesn't mean you won't have a goal, you won't want to achieve, it doesn't mean you won't plan and organize. You know, you won't, that part of us lives in time, that's how we survive. You know? But it'll also be, I can start right now with this feeling, I can start right now with this sensation, I can start right now with this loneliness, this anguish, this worry. If it's worry or anxiety, you know it's being generated by your mind, probably in the future. Well, you can know that. Can you change it? Yes, you can. But the most important process is to love the you, the identity that's in the future that's creating that anxiety. So that touch of yourself to yourself, minute by minute, moment by moment, remembering to touch yourself with love and compassion, love and compassion. And then you start to be gentler with you. And when you're gentler with you, you're gentler with everyone. But we actually need time to sink into ourselves. You had to give a lot of time into being a triathlete. Yeah, you have to give sure. a lot of time into being a parent. And our time is, we give it away too easily. And then we become addicted to the behavior patterns that we give it away to. And we become creations of our own beliefs about time, you see. And yet there's always timelessness right now. And it's in the body. Or you need to be in your body to know it. And so, touch the way you want to be touched. Touch yourself the way ultimately you want to be touched. Use your awareness gently. Get to know your critic, your judge, your pusher in you. Mm -hmm. And treat them as wonderful friends that's really important to you at one stage of life, but right now are making you suffer. And that's a lot. Start with your breathing. Start to, to want to develop that aware self-process. Who you are begins now. As you touch is the law of the present moment. As you touch is how you're touched. And it's all recursive. You are the creation of the God you create. If the relationship is not working now, you sit down and find out what you're doing that makes it not right. work. Because we always point our finger at the other person. Yep. It's because of him or her or them. You know. That's a great point. Okay, this has been awesome. You know, if people want to connect with you and do some of this deep work that you do, you have a couple retreats coming up, don't you? Yeah, yeah, thanks. The 10 day retreat this summer in France, August 12th to 22nd, done in English and French. People come from all over the world. And it's not a giant retreat, it's not like sitting there with a thousand, two thousand people with Eckhart Tolle for a few days. It's a deeply experiential process to teach us in our bodies what I've been talking about. I call it radical aliveness. I've called it that for 35, 40 years. Yeah, and I like that. And then here in the US in, in early October, the third to the sixth, I'm at a beautiful place, um, small, you know, we can hold about 18 people it, in North Carolina, Sandy Ridge, North Carolina. It's a place called Moon Lake. And you just go to my website and you find the events and if you can't come to those, just follow it. Because Kathy and I do private retreats for people here. You know, um, they come and they spend half a day with us, or sequences of half days, or sequence of longer days. And um, yeah. So, and and then I don't do anywhere near as much work that way. Then people can also just go to the the website and then they can 
called me and was Skype with me. He set, right. set that up. And and you've got a great video series on YouTube yes. and just some great resources um, if you're curious about finding radical aliveness. Mm-hmm. Richard Moss is your guy. <laughs> you Thank know, you, Nicole. Oh, it's so great. Well, I, I want to wrap with the final question that I ask every guest who comes on the show. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Be gentle with yourself. And then when you've learned that gentleness, be more gentle with yourself. And when you've begin to find that more in your body, then be more gentle with yourself. Um, and realizing that many of, be gentle with how you push for your achievements. You know, Hold everything lightly. I love it. I'm just sitting here breathing consciously and being gentle. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out today. It's great. My pleasure. All right. Hey there. I am back. I'm still using my soft, gentle voice. (laughs) With just so many levels, it's like just when I thought we got to the core of something, there was another layer and another core beyond the core. Uh, This episode also had me thinking about how we reflect the energy around us. I felt like I was using my gentle voice throughout. I got gentler. I was like reflecting (laughs) Richard's energy. Um, Sort of like his final nugget said, be gentle with yourself, then be more gentle and more gentle still. I know many of you are out running right now or working out and it's tough to feel gentle when you're out there pushing your body. That's not what we're talking about. Because maybe, just maybe, when you can find that gentle spot that's really the key to finding your flow and to becoming radically alive, to let it all go and just be. All right, I'll let that one simmer while you absorb today's conversation with Richard Moss. For more about him, go to richardmoss.com and check out what he has to offer, including those cool retreats coming up. There's one in North Carolina um, this fall and also some in 2020 in Europe. Um, On my end, I want to know what you're thinking about the pod these days. I want to know what you're thinking about what I'm doing. I've had so many incredible guests, 141 to be exact. Actually, more than that, because of those mile repeat episodes. Do you want me to bring those back? Um, Do you like the kind of guests I have on? Am I delivering what you're looking for or better yet? Am I delivering what you don't know you need at exactly the moment you realize you need it? That is the key to success. I hope so, but I don't know unless you tell me. So please take a moment to write a review on iTunes or share an episode on social media with a comment or two, or if you really love what I do and want me to keep rolling for the long term, become a patron. By donating as little as $1 per month at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Nicole DeBoom. My next episode is going to feature my first patron, Liz DeLise. She is a delight and a treat and you're going to love it. 
So get ready. Become a patron. Maybe I'll have you on the show. Okay, then. That's it for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.